This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. We're not going to make the world a more just and livable place by trying to educate the masses. What we ought to be doing is creating space so that the masses can educate themselves. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. What's it like to be a legal scholar? You go to college, get a graduate degree, maybe a Ph.D., to study something about the law in our lives. You spend years in the hallowed halls of academia. But who are you now, and how has your scholarship changed your life? Life of the Law traveled to New Orleans for the Law and Society Association's annual meeting, where more than 2,000 law and social science scholars from all over the world got together to share their work, and a few told personal stories about how that work has impacted their lives. Host Asagi Obasagi, law professor at UC Hastings in San Francisco and a member of Life of the Law's advisory board, takes us to center stage, Live Law, New Orleans. Um, so tonight's event is about living your scholarship, um, and that's kind of the, the central focus here. And again, we have 12 folks joining us, and the first person today coming to the stage is Laura Beth Nielsen. So Laura Beth is a professor of sociology at Northwestern, and her story tonight is about a time when her son, Zach, became an unwilling subject of law and got a firsthand view of his mom's passion about the Constitution. So, Laura Beth. This is outside of my comfort zone, but here we go. One day at work, I noticed that there was a, f a message on my cell phone, and I listened to it. It was from my son Zach's middle school vice principal, who we will call Ms. Walker. And Ms. Walker's message said, Hello, Mrs. Sorensen. I'm just calling to let you know that um, we had to go ahead and search Zach today for drugs. Now, the good news is we didn't find anything, but I just wanted to let you know in case you had any questions. Oh, yeah, I have questions. So I called my husband before I called Ms. Walker. He had received a similar message, but slightly different. It said that they had to search his locker for drugs. Now, law school was a long time ago, so long, in fact, that at the time, I was close to half done paying off my loans. But I remembered that the standard for searching a public school student is very different from searching um, a locker. So I called Ms. Walker and said, you know, why'd you search Zach? And she said, well, 
what I like to do is I like to walk around the lunchroom and I kind of look over here, but I'm listening over here and they don't know I'm listening. And I heard the word Zach and the word marijuana in the same sentence. And so, you know, we had to be sure. And I said, hmm, so could the sentence have been Zach told me he watched a really interesting documentary about marijuana last night? And she said, I don't know. And I said, could it have been Zach told me that I should never take marijuana because it's a very harmful drug? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, why were you searching my Zach? How many boys named Zach or go to this middle school? She didn't know. She said, well, you know, the kids who were talking were skateboarders, and Zach's a skateboarder, and we know about skateboarders. So I decided that was enough talking with Ms. Walker, and I went home to talk to Zach about it. So we met at home, my husband and Zach and I, and we sat down, and we said, what happened? And Zach burst into tears, and he said, you know, getting, what happened? So he said, after lunch, a uniformed city police officer and the middle school vice principal, Ms. Walker, called him out of class. They took him, they told him to gather his things. They went to his locker, which he was asked to empty. Everything was searched. And then put everything back. They went to the Ms. Walker's office. Um, he dumped out his backpack. Everything was searched. The books were shaken. And then they searched him. They made him take off his shoes and socks. They made him pull up his pant legs. They patted him down. They made him pull open his um, waistband. I, I guess this might be a place where someone wouldn't hide marijuana. And um, you know, they patted him down. And when they found nothing, they sent him back to class. Now for Zach, getting pulled out of class was embarrassing. But the big problem for Zach was that his best friend, Kwaku, who remains his best friend to this day, wouldn't walk home with him. As an African-American child, his parents had been very serious about how Kwaku was to move about in our very racially and socioeconomically diverse city with a serious, serious gang problem and a high murder rate. So long story short about that evening, we convinced Zach to go back to school the next day. Um, we talked to Kwaku's parents who were equally appalled and um, uh, really quickly, as seventh grade news stories go, this one fell out of the headlines. But of course, I wasn't going to let it go. So we set up a time to meet with the principal. The principal avoided me for a really long time. But eventually we all sat down and I, and, um, I remembered my mother's sage advice, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And so I, said, I started off saying, you might not believe this about me if you know me, but I really did. I said. Um, you know, I'm not sure the district is giving you guys really good information about what you need to have to lawfully search, you know, a child. And maybe we could go to the district together and ask for clarification. So Principal McBaggins did not see this amazingly beautiful out that I was giving him. Giving him. Instead, he dug in and said, I can do whatever I want to keep the children safe and I'm disappointed that you aren't approaching this like a good mother. Yeah, let that sink in. My husband told me later on that he was proud of me for not crawling across the desk and stabbing the principal in the eye with a pencil. I might have done so, but my mind was reeling with law and society brain. I was going, uh, you most certainly can't do whatever you want, public school principal. What do you mean keep the children safe? The, re the research on, you know, 
the security state in educational environments is very clear that the more security you do, the less learning is happening and it has a disproportionate impact on children of color. And finally, I was screaming in my mind, is that a thinly veiled threat to call the Department of Children and Family Services? It's not gonna work on me, but if that's how you control people whose lives are already bound up with the state because they're living in poverty, wow. What I actually said in the moment was, I am being a good mother. I'm gonna insist that you respect the constitutional rights of my child and every child in this building. Oh, I don't know who clapped, but I love you. So, um, to that end, I said, how many kids do you search in a week, a month, whatever? And simultaneously, Ms. Walker and the principal gave opposite answers. She had figured out I was worried about the stigmatizing effect on Zach, so she said, rarely. And he knew that I was beginning to be concerned with the police state issue, and so he said, uh, no, she figured out I was tr uh, that I was worried about the stigmatizing effect on Zach, and so she was trying to normalize. She said, all the time. And he said, rarely, because he had figured out I was worried about. So, um, I said, so I knew I wasn't gonna get straight answers, right? They're giving me opposite answers. So I said, um, well, how many are children of color? Uh, how many are African-American? How many are white? How many are Latino? Very, very diverse um, school district with a big uh, achievement gap between the races. And they didn't know. And then I said, how often, what's the hit rate? How often are you searching kids that have nothing? And they didn't know that either. That meeting ended unhappily. Fast forward to the meeting with the superintendent, because you know, you know I wasn't done, right? So I prepared, along with three lawyer friends of mine, an education lawyer, a Fourth Amendment death penalty mitigation expert, <laughs> and a corporate lawyer litigator. We prepared a brief about the, I did all the research. We prepared a brief about the constitutional standard. I sent it to the superintendent ahead of time, asked him to please send it to his lawyers. And we get, we go in there, we're going in. It's total showdown at the OK Corral. Everybody's like, oh, like eight people around this giant conference table, like so many lawyers. And instead of giving my very carefully prepared legal argument, moot court, law school style, I just broke down sobbing. And I said, um, I love this school district, and I don't want to sue this school district. I love these kids. We can't afford it. We're a public school district. But neither am I going to allow this to go on. You have to begin keeping data about how, who you're searching, and you have to retrain. And, and it was a very productive conversation. I don't know if it was crying or the memo, or what, but the, it very quickly became a conversation about what we could do, and a lot of good changes were implemented in the district. So why am I telling you this story? Like our research, I think that this story embodies a lot of contradictions, and there are a lot of ways to interpret it. You could say, this is a story about the power of law to dominate people at risk, children and particularly children of color in a public school system with a high crime problem. Um, but you could also say this is a story about the power of law to change things and to resist that domination, right? I was able to do it, they now keep the data and um, there's a retraining every year that I'm always invited to. <laughs> And still, you could have another interpretation, which is, this is how law works for people with race and class privilege. I'm white, Zach's white, Zach didn't have any drugs then, seventh grade. Um, and 
no, really, Mom, he doesn't have any drugs. And, um, but I was able to marshal the, I had the social networks and the resources to bring in these three lawyers. And um, that has to do with my profession and all of my privilege and advantage. So I can't tell you what this story means. I'll have to let you guys decide that for yourselves. But I can tell you that the principal retired at the end of that academic year. <laughs> So our next storyteller will be Javier Cusa. So Javier is a socio-legal uh, scholar working in Chile, and drawing on his personal experience, he's going to reflect on the ways in which public authority and law in democratic societies can be experienced by vulnerable groups in very much the same way that dissidents ex experience law under authoritarian regimes. Javier? So good evening. I, I have devoted the last 20 years to the study of law and democratization in Latin America, the place where I grew up and I live. And when I was invited by Life of the Law of talking about you know, how my biography cross issues that I work, I, it was hard at the beginning. You know, Transitology, constitutionalism, the rule of law, how could that fix with my life, how it overlaps? But of course, I immediately came to realize that I grew up in, in a dictatorship. When I was eight years old, uh, my father was sent to prison just for the crime of being uh, in favor of Salvador Allende's constitutional government. And three months later, he was released and we went into exile in Evering, Argentina. Later on, we were allowed back, and, but still under the military regime of Augusto Pinochet. So what was interesting is that we were growing up reading Milan Kundera, you know, reading about the abject and absurd and almost tragic comical daily experiences of communist Czechoslovakia. And for us it was fascinating how similar it felt to growing up in anti-communist Chile Pinochet. But the story I wanted to tell, one is comical, and the other abject of that time, the comical one happened, you know, we were demonstrating. I was in law school. In Chile, you do law school out of high school. And, you know, eventually the police surrounded the university and started a search, searching for books, basically Marxist or radical books. And my best friend had had Latin that day. So, you know, he had a Cicero book. So eventually the policeman looks at the book, looks at him, and he says, translated to me. And my friend looks at him, and the policeman, I think, thinks again and says, oh, if you translate it, you might lie to me. So, in a way, go ahead, get out of here. So that's, you know, that kind of comical things happen a lot. But, of course, I had a more abject kind of Milan Kundera or Kafkian experience. You know, I had a little scholarship for buying books as a law student. And eventually the check stopped coming. So I went to the university saying, you know, what's wrong? And I said, no, the Ministry of Education stopped your scholarship because, you know, you have been engaged in illegal activities. Illegal activities. So I said, 
you can go and ask. I went to the Ministry of Education and he said, no, there's a mistake your university punished you for doing things against university rules and regulations. So everyone, it was a long story short. I finally came back to the Ministry of Education and he says, kind of tired, look, stop playing games. You know exactly where your scholarship is done. And sure enough, I had a voila moment. I had been elected with other friends to the first student union opposed to Pinochet, my university. So, but you know, it was a minor incident. I had friends who had experienced the real stuff you read about dictatorships. But these were, you know, small little daily, there's thousands of these abuses. So, but that story for me was, in a way, it's banal. That happens in every authoritarian regime. But for what was striking to me is an insight I got years later. Pinochet was gone. I was already a lawyer. I was 26 years old. And, you know, I, had, I was in New York City trying to get a cure for a very aggressive illness. And there I was, you know, before a yuppie-looking oncologist at Sloan Kettering Memorial. And he explained to me, you know, you need a very rather urgent treatment that would basically it's a bubble, you would be three months, and you know, you might die, it's 15%, it's not too high, but, and my mother had, had been finishing a scholarship, a Fulbright for high school teachers, and her visa was about to be out, uh, gone, and, and she said, I would really like to be you know, next to you while you're doing this treatment because it's so serious. So we went to the Immigration and Naturalization Service in Lower Manhattan. So it's this huge building. And you know, after half hour in line, I explained to the officer, you know, in a rather broken English, at the time it was more broken than now, and I said, look, we really, uh, my plight, my mother really would like to have another stay. And the lady looks at me and says, there is absolutely nothing we can do. You know, I said, but really, it's only a couple of months. It's not such a big deal. And she said, look, there's absolutely nothing you can do. So I count to 10, I don't know if you have that expression in English, and I said, look, do you, in a very polite way, I said, do you happen to have a supervisor? She says, I do have, but I cannot tell you where he is, and, I will, and now you have to go. So I insisted, and she said, look, I would have to need to get the police and get you out of here. So. I just decided that you know it was a rather complicated situation. We went out of the building, and I reasoned, look, supervisors might be high in, in the top stories of this building. So I sneaked back into the I, Immigration and Naturalization Service, and this was really Kafkian. Rooms after rooms, full of people that seemed to be waiting forever. So I sat in one of those, and an immigration lawyer looked at me and, and said, you know, he was sort of curious, what is this guy doing here? I, I explained the decision. He says, look, apparently in the top floor, there is a room where you can get the solution. You know, sure enough, I, it's a long story. Two hours later, I was out with my mother's visa extension. But this, again, for me was, I mean, I had studied Weber, you know, I studied law. I had cultural capital, the privilege that Laura Beth was saying. I had studied Weber, and I knew you know, how to. But the insight was the following. I mean, I, I earned my living as an academic trying to make sense of concepts. You know, 
democracy, consolidated democracies, dictatorships, but the subjectivity, like the realizing that being a foreigner in trouble or an immigrant in a democratic society felt exactly as being a citizen citizen in a dictatorship like Pinochet's. For me, that was an astonishing discovery because in a way it really shattered my whole conceptual life. And that's why law and society for me means so much. And I, you know, the processes, the punishment, all these books for me, I think, relate to that, those two very basic experiences. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So our next storyteller will, it will be Bronwyn Morgan. Uh, so Bronwyn is currently uh, at the University of New South Wales in Australia. And she is going to tell us about becoming a laterally reluctant global citizen. I'm looking forward to this. So, untethered by text, I'm unmoored to a PowerPoint. I feel a bit like a... Empress New Clothes, except uh, completely exposed. <laughs> um, something more positive, like, uh, look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> I knew I could do it. Okay, so I'm going to pretend. Last time, a few years ago, Life of the Law was in a cabaret theater bar situation. That's where I imagined we'd be, so I thought maybe I'd pretend we were there and you could ask me, where are you from? You've got that amorphous mid-Atlantic accent. And I'd say, well, it's, it's amorphous. <laughs> so here's how it goes. I was born in Zimbabwe, which was most of my life there, Rhodesia. Grew up there during a time of interracial conflict and civil war. And around 17, I was pitched into a decade of education in Australia by immigrating there. I got the taste for education and continued another five, six years of that at Berkeley doing my PhD, and then, without any particular plan to move to another country, had 13 years of academic life in the United Kingdom. Now I'm currently back in Australia, I'm married to a Texan, and I spend a good deal of time trying to keep up to date with the bureaucratic paperwork of the 10 passports that my tri-national family hold between the four of us. And I still haven't got around to figuring out whether my South African-born father is eligible for the Australian pension from his house in Chiang Mai, Thailand. <laughs> so you get the picture. But nowhere in my research do you get that picture. I, my research has no traces of focus on migration, hybrid identities, colonialism, racism, cosmopolitanism. For some reason, I seem to have built a wall between my personal life and my research. My first book was on the riveting topic of cost-benefit analysis in bureaucracies. <laughs> My second on the privatization of water utilities. <laughs> and then I had children. 
and everything changed. And I went from one moment doing a cross-country, six case studies, cross-comparative, cross cross-national, seems a long time ago, case studies of global water governance in what my husband loved to call exotic places where Bronwyn has friends. <laughs> and suddenly I was contracted to a world of about eight streets in Montpellier, Bristol, uh, sort of stomping up and down a micro-circuit of parks and swings and emergency places for nappy diaper, nappy diaper changes. <laughs> um, and I, I came to know these eight streets in a kind of visceral, bodily, almost molecular way that was completely new to me. And I thought it was kind of an exquisite contraction. And in that, were born the seeds of what is now my current research. On my first Mother's Day, my husband gave me a book called The Transition Handbook, which is a kind of a 12-step program for positive neighborhood-led action in response to climate change. And I became intrigued. I found out about it, became a bit involved, began to participate, and very, very slowly and tentatively began to actually study small-scale instances of this. What I saw them as kind of elements of activism and enterprise blended together. I was interested in different forms of community-supported agriculture, community-owned energy associations, websites where people were sharing stuff, uh, co-working spaces, car sharing. And so slowly, I built a research project around this. And it was all going to be about starting where you are, going back to exploring all the possibilities that were pregnant in one tiny, small, localized situation. But then, circumstances led me into a move to Australia, and everything changed. First of all, I became a walking case study. I realized as we moved that I had wiped the slate clean, all those bureaucratically forged identities that I, in some ways, had indirectly studied before, had disappeared, and the pieces of the puzzle that allow us to just move around and feed ourselves and power ourselves had, had gone. And I took the opportunity to sort of enter into personal participation in all these things I was studying and joined a car-sharing association and refused in Sydney, which is much like LA in terms of its car dependence, to get a car and, and um, got our food through city cousins of community-supported agriculture, joined Green Power, got, you know, and basically drove my husband mad with <laughs> this personal um, immersion in what I was studying. Um, but it, it, it led to the feeling that I was starting to become a living contradiction because this project that was born elsewhere, the whole rationale had turned on its head and, and here I was shuttling now with a comparative study between Bristol and Sydney for the last three, four years with my heart and brain somewhat in fragments and my carbon footprint somewhere through the roof. And I felt like I was a living contradiction, um, wanting to study the nuanced traces of embodied localization, but just em em embroiled in what felt like the increasingly frantic mobility of scholarly life. And then a second contradiction sort of crept into the research itself. And what had started out as these kind of niche experiments in the periphery of the mainstream economy got picked up, the experiments in the way that people were changing production and consumption, picked up by savvy people in Silicon Valley with literally billions of venture capital behind them and suddenly became the sharing economy, which emerged like a kind of black vulture over this research. 
Airbnb and Uber became embodied instances, apparently, of what I thought I had been studying, quite different to the spirit of what I had begun to study. And I remembered that in the early 1990s, I was uh, in the Bay Area studying, and, and I was moving in circles that overlapped with Reid Hoffman, who became the founder of LinkedIn. This was before he founded LinkedIn. And he used to run this salon in the South Bay Area. And I went to some of these, and they were gatherings in houses with uh, sort of selected groups of people, very much in the spirit of 19th century German coffee houses. Great discussions, ideas for their own sake, wide-ranging, going to places we didn't know where, um, very stimulating. But after five or six of them, Reed suggested that we incorporate ourselves and give ourselves an official name. And when I said, puzzled, why would we do that? He said, well, so we can issue press releases, make a difference, change the world become impactful. I don't think he actually said that, but that's the language of our current university life. Um, and, you know, since then, he's now written a book called The Startup of You, which quite, it is called that. <laughs> and it quite literally, I, I, I remember when I first wrote this, I said it, it, it suggests that you analogize yourself to a startup, but it doesn't. It actually suggests you literally treat yourself, your life trajectory, as a startup venture, that you're a living, breathing startup, and that you need to continually pivot, this is a crucial verb, from plan A to plan B, and each time you produce a new pitch deck, which you use to convince your, your uh, stakeholders that your, your fresh idea is bankable. So I look at this, and I'm, I'm all for the idea of bridges between academia and beyond, and obviously LSA, part of its appeal to me is its interest in that, and life of the law is an embodiment of that. But I, I start to feel like I, and perhaps many of us, are, are becoming kind of entrepreneurs of our own careers. And I feel increasingly struck by the sort of contradictions between the way in which what I'm studying is becoming the opposite of what my scholarly life day to day actually is. I've recently become uh, involved with a theater director who I met through a, a political economy critique she was making of theater. And she's, uh, in, in association with this critique, she's shared a script she wrote 20 years ago with the world. And she's given up directorial control and abandoned intellectual property or copyright or any sense of control over it. And she's encouraging production of this script in many, anywhere in the world. It's been done, I think, 12 times so far. And the only condition she has is to stay in dialogue with those who take that script and adapt it to match the circumstances and the, the resonance and the themes that they see in that work for themselves. And I, I read her script and I felt strong echoes of my own research in that, except for her, the protagonist is a, a, a questing young musician. And for me, it would be an aspiring social entrepreneur in line with these themes. And there's an apt statement. There was an article in the New York of, a few years ago which said, I think it was something like, the idealized social form of our time is the small business, and the characteristic art form of our age, the business plan. <laughs> and that has a really bittersweet truth, which I think has both risk and tragedy and yet possibility. And I don't yet know where my collaboration with the theater director is going. Um, I'm going to talk about it a bit more on Sunday, but I know that it's blurred the lines and muddied the lines between my personal and intellectual life more than ever. So I'm going to end this with a, a tweet, a carefully composed tweet 
Um, I learned to tweet during this project. And this one is about investing in my new brand identity, so I've updated my accent. And it's now more cutting edge, possibly even world class. <laughs> so I'm thinking about how to pivot from my awesome global lifestyle to living my passion for the local. I'll see you in a decade. So up next is Jamie uh, Longazel. So Jamie grew up in Pennsylvania's coal region and is currently an assistant professor at the University of Dayton. He wrote his recent book, Undocumented Fears, after these two worlds collided. Jamie? My parents didn't go to college. Neither did most of the adults I knew growing up. I'm from northeastern Pennsylvania, a city called Hazleton, a place we fondly refer to as the coal region, known for its mining of anthracite coal. While the middle-class kids were out getting piano lessons, my friends and I played in the ruins of the mining industry. We rode four-wheelers over comb banks, snuck around in old breakers, and swam in bodies of water that were once strip mining pits. I know a lot of people in this business map out their careers far in advance, but when it came time to think about college and my family, we didn't know where to start. I remember this one time sitting at the kitchen table with my mom and my good friend Louis, and we were trying to figure out what I should major in. And Louis was this great guy. He um, can convince you to do anything. And so we're sitting there and we have all of these brochures out that we're flipping through and, and all of a sudden Louis jumps up in his seat and he shouts, criminal justice! Yeah man, that would be cool! You could be like an FBI agent or something. Yeah, that would be cool, I said, with an image of Clarice from Silence of the Lambs in my head. And so I became a criminal justice major. It worked out quite well, actually. If nothing else, it's how I got introduced to sociology, to law, and to some professors who saw my talent and encouraged me to go on to graduate school, which I did. Louis, as an aside, drifted out of my life after I went to college. It's an entirely other story, but he did show up once in my senior year, knocked at my front door one Friday evening, uh, with a wad of cash in his hand, trying to convince me to come to the strip club with him. Um, anyway, I went to graduate school, and when I got there, I, I felt like I landed on Mars. I used to wear this backwards hat. It was kind of faded and had the frayed brim on the back, and soon after I got there, I, I took it off. It felt like it was making me stand out. I didn't know all the wards that people were using, felt like I needed a dictionary to carry around with me. And these receptions, let me just say that the upper middle class has access to a vast array of delicious cheeses that they've been hoarding from the rest of America. <laughs> In time, I learned my way around and I started reading books and taking classes that helped me to better make sense of the world. While I was doing that, things started changing back home. A bunch of low-wage industries started to move in, 
And with that came the arrival of a relatively large Latino immigrant labor force. At the time of the 2000 census, Hazleton was 95% white. This is right around the time that I left. By 2006, the estimate was that it was 36% Latino. When I would call home to check, on, to check in, folks would mention this here or there. But it became a big deal in 2006 when the city's mayor decided that he was going to pass a nasty anti-immigrant law. He wanted to punish businesses who hired undocumented people. He wanted to punish landlords who rented to undocumented people. And he wanted to make English our city's official language. When I learned that this was getting national attention, I decided to make it my dissertation project. For one, it was exactly the kind of thing I had been studying in graduate school at the time. But more importantly, and for God's sakes, this was my hometown pulling this shit. You know, it's funny, in, in college and, and into graduate school, I was, I was getting politicized. My dad works in a factory, always did. And I can remember vividly talking to him on the phone after I read Marx for the first time. <laughs> you know, I always knew that they didn't treat him well there. But what a fantastic feeling it was to be able to explain why. <laughs> Means of production, surplus value, alienation. Before that, we just relied on the theory that the guys in the suits were assholes. <laughs> this feeling, this feeling is what I had throughout the process of conducting this in-depth exploration of my hometown. The process transformed me. It really did. It got me to see, and I mean really see, where I came from, to an extent who I was. For instance, we had a lot of these little coal mining museums around town that I would go to from time to time as a kid. But never before did I have the opportunity to sit down and actually study closely the tactics that the coal barons used to use to exploit the miners, how they would pit immigrant groups against one another and whatnot. There was this industrial park right outside of the city. I knew everybody worked there. My dad spent half of his life there. I worked there for a short time as well but it wasn't until I really got the chance to dig in that I appreciated the extent to which the Reagan-era tax cuts drove manufacturing out of my city and left so many of my neighbors struggling to get by. I started to see through an opportunistic politician's propaganda as he tried convincing us that undocumented people were the source of all of our troubles. This is all the same, I realized. We're part of an ongoing struggle. We don't dig coal anymore, but now there's a new generation of barons who are manipulating us. Damn! Why isn't anybody talking about this? At that point, there was no turning back. I couldn't put it down. I still can't put it down. I need to understand the way that this works, and I need to be a part of the work that people are doing to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I owe a lot to academia for helping me get to this point, to the mentors, the teachers, the fellowships, 
that gave me the time and the resources and the energy that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to, in fact, that I otherwise wouldn't have even known existed. After 10 years working on this project, I'm proud to say that my book came out this spring called Undocumented Fears, Immigration and the Politics of Divide and Conquer in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's my story, and I think the applause suggests that this is what we do, right? This is, what we, this is why we teach, why we write, why we're in this business. But that's not quite what I'm going for here. Check this out. The day I defended my dissertation, I got an email that was meant as a joke from a committee member, white, middle class, that had a YouTube video of a uh, South Park clip the cartoon South Park. It featured these uh, little hillbilly caricatures running around shouting, they take our jobs, they take our jobs. It was like a cruel initiation. Congratulations. Now you can be one of us, not one of them. You know, enlightened on race, unlike those backwards Pennsylvanians. Here I was, appreciating and really starting to understand my identity as a working class person. Here I was doing research that was going to help shed light on the mechanisms that recreate racial and economic inequality in our society. And here I was finally gaining entry into a profession that, let's face it, prefers to have poor folks as subjects rather than colleagues. Yet at that very moment, I was reminded something that I've been reminded of over and over again from the beginning and to this very day, that I won't be able to exist comfortably in this middle-class world as a working-class person. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be what it's all about right? Rags to riches, from swimming in strip mining pits to climbing the stairs of the ivory tower. But not for me. I can't do it. I can't sell out in that way. I need to be me. But that's the tricky part. At this point, who am I anyway? I don't feel at home in academia, but home doesn't quite feel like home anymore either. If I were to reconnect with Louis, it would be great to see him. But let's face it, I don't know how interested he's going to be in what I've been up to. I think what I'm trying to say, well, for one, I, it's worth acknowledging, this is, a, this is a lonely space that I'm describing. But it's a space that I enjoy. It's a space where I feel free. What I'm trying to say is that as scholars and as academics, I think it's really key that we don't hoard knowledge the way y'all hoard cheese. <laughs> but more importantly, at a certain point, I think we need to acknowledge that we're not the only experts out there. We're not going to make the world a more just and livable place by trying to educate the masses. What we ought to be doing is creating space 
so that the masses can educate themselves. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Bernadette Atuende. So Bernadette is a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law and travels, well, pretty much nonstop. So tonight we're gonna to join Bernadette on the road. Bernadette. All right, people, I'm gonna start my story with a confession. I, Bernadette Atuahene, I'm completely high maintenance. <laughs> My parents immigrated to this country from Ghana, West Africa, and to be perfectly honest, they are extremely high maintenance too. So when I was young, I actually tried not to be high maintenance. I really did. And I asked my parents once if I could go camping because that's what those low maintenance children seem to be doing. You know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that wore Birkenstocks and those other ugly comfort shoes. And, and when I asked my parents if I could go camping, they were outraged. My father started yelling at me. He was like, camping, camping, you want to go camping? I am here paying a mortgage and my daughter wants to go and pretend she's a homeless. Yeah, I was like, whoa, that's a big reaction. But I immediately fell in line. And now if I go to a national park, you will see me nowhere near a tent. I will be at the nearest Hilton. But it's all for the good because I have a bug phobia and camping involves bugs and so it is what it is. But being high maintenance presents a lot of challenges in the research I do. So my last book, I did 150 interviews of, of South Africans whose land was stolen by the apartheid and colonial governments and they received some form of compensation through the land restitution program. So one of the families of the many, many families that I interviewed was called the Indolela family. And uh, when I called to set up the interview, they were extremely excited that a professor from America was coming to hear their story. And they, in fact, invited the entire family to come and participate in the interview. And so as I roll up in my car and I get there, I realize, wow, okay. I didn't quite expect it, but I realized that they lived in this ramshackle structure made of corrugated tin. So as soon as I walked in the door, it became very apparent to me that every inch of that shack was filled with this deep love. And like most South Africans, when you come into their house, whether you're, they're rich or they're poor, they offer you some tea and biscuits. And so, although I knew they were desperately poor and wasn't sure if they can actually afford the tea and the biscuits, I didn't for one second think about not accepting because by accepting their hospitality, I was accepting them. The problem was after drinking all that darn tea, I was like, oh God, I need to go pee, I need to go pee. Then they sent a little girl to take me to the restroom and she's walking me outside. I'm like, where are we going? I'm like, where's the restroom? I need to go pee, I need to go pee. And she points and I look and there's this deep, deep hole filled with feces and the smell alone would make you wanna pass out. And so all of a sudden, seconds earlier, I was like, I need to go, I need to go pee, I need to go pee. When I realized what that entailed, I was like, I'm cool. I don't need to go pee anymore. That was a barrier, that was a boundary, and I wasn't crossing it. So my current book project is actually in Detroit. And I thought to myself, you know, now that I'm coming back to America, the fact that I'm so damn high maintenance won't be a liability in my research anymore, because even in the projects, they have porcelain toilets. 
so this new project I'm doing is of squatters in Detroit. There's this whole phenomenon of squatting in Detroit. And so before I started interviewing squatters, I actually first started by interviewing government officials with the housing portfolio who were making policy that might affect the squatters. And the dominant narrative amongst these officials was that Detroit squatters were either drug dealers or drug users. And obviously there's lots of people squatting, not just drug dealers or drug users, but they'd be like, not all of them, but most of them, right? And so it's important for me in my work to really be able to interview some drug dealers and drug users because they have this uh, very, they take up so much space in the imagination of policymakers. So I find my, I, I find my research subjects usually um, at a soup kitchen because in Detroit, all the houses that people are squatting in have been stripped. And so there's no electricity, there's no water, so they go to the soup kitchen to have a hot meal uh, and to bathe. And so I go, I hang out at the soup kitchen, I've made lots of friends, I've done lots of interviews, but there's one woman who really was so excited to do, do the interview. And I would say, you ready to do the interview? She'd be like, I want to, but today I can't, I'm sick. And she um, is a chronic crack addict, and she actually lives in the nearby, um, a nearby squat. She's squatting in a nearby house. So I came in one day and I said, today, you ready today? You want to do the interview today? And she goes, no, I feel good today. I want to do the interview. I was like, cool. And so we go to this little back room where they have for me where I do all my interviews. And she goes, before we start, Bernadette, I have some good news for you. I was like, okay. I said, what? She said, I stopped smoking crack. I was like, hallelujah. We were celebrating and high-fiving. And I was like, when did you stop smoking crack? She said, last night. <laughs> I was like, okay. We continued the interview and hearing her story after hearing about the four rapes and all of the violence, it just became painfully obvious to me that her lifelong crack addiction was a way of self-medicating through her reality. And it was this, her story was extremely hard for me to hear. And it, it was not only her story, but all the stories I was hearing were extremely hard to hear. And they were actually having an impact on me that at that moment, I didn't fully realize. And, you know, I had a boundary and it was, it was, it was, I was so far beyond that boundary. And so I did another uh, interview that also took me far beyond my boundary. In this interview, I did of a woman that I met at a shelter. I also go to shelters. And uh, she, we had a great interview, and she told me all about the squatting. And then she, we, I was hanging out at the shelter, and we became friends, and she kind of confided in me. She was like, you know what? My son is dealing drugs out of a squat. She's like, you want to interview him? I was like, yes. And so she brings them through to the shelter and they have a little room for me in the back where I do all my interviews at the shelter. And we're having this interview and you guys, this interview was pure gold. I mean, he was laying it out, what they do, how they do it, how this thing works. And I was just, you know, enthralled, um, the just level of rich detail. And all of a sudden he's just so open and flowing, right? And all of a sudden he stops. And he looks at his mom and he picks something off of her sleeve and he puts it on the table and he smacks it. I'm like, oh, good Lord, what was that? He looks real closely. He said, a bed bug. <gasps> oh my God, I've already told you people, I have a bug phobia. So in that moment, what I wanted to do is jump and scream and yell and run out of the room and holler and be like, oh God, bed bugs, right? But I couldn't, 
I couldn't do any of that because in that moment I had to push down all my phobia, my, my fear, my whatever, because in that moment what I had to do is help that woman keep her dignity. And she was humiliated. She was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this bed bug was on me. I was in the shelter. The woman next to me was filled with lice and bed bugs. I knew they would get on me. I just told her, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We can, it's not a problem, it's not a problem. We kept the interview going and we finished the interview. And at the end of the interview, as we were walking out, she says to goodbye and she opens up her arms to give me a great big hug. And without missing a beat, I gave her the longest, tightest embrace that I possibly could. And, but, I got in my car and I promise you, I fled Detroit. I fled Detroit. What does that mean? It means that I had been in Detroit for two months and saw my suitcases were in the room I was I left my suitcases. I took what I had on my person, got in my car, and I left Detroit and started driving home to Chicago. Four and a half hours. I didn't care about my stuff. I needed to leave Detroit, and I needed to go to Chicago because Chicago's where it was safe. Chicago's where it was clean. Chicago's where I felt emotionally and physically, you know, comforted. I just needed to go home. So when I got home to Chicago, I, at that point, I had a complete and total meltdown. Every time I talked to any of my family and friends about what I was experiencing in Detroit, I would just fall into tears and start crying. Um, and then I remember what my dad always said. He always said, Benny, you don't take care of yourself. You have got to start taking care of yourself. So I fell in line. So what we did, me and my friends and my family, we got together a five-point Bernadette needs to keep her sanity in Detroit plan that entailed things like extending my ethnographic notes to make it more like a diary and where I can put my personal reactions to things. And it entailed before I got overwhelmed, reaching out to family and friends, uh, you know, just for, for support. And, you know, at the end of the day, I had my plan together, my self-care plan. I got in my car a week later and drove back to Detroit to finish my work. And the thing is that when we do these kinds of interviews, it's a complete and total privilege that people allow us into their lives. But it also is a great burden. We can carry around those stories and that pain with us. And so it is so important to do that self-care and make sure that we are taking care of ourselves. And we all have boundaries. I'm high maintenance, you all may be low maintenance, I'm not sure. But the point is, wherever you stand in life, we all have our boundaries and we have to respect those boundaries. Thanks. storyteller for tonight is Tom Tyler. So Tom is a social psychologist who teaches at Yale Law School and he's a longtime member of the Law and Society Association. So Tom. Well, I think the first time that the law seemed very central to my life is when I was an undergraduate. I, by the force of history, I was an undergraduate at Columbia College in 1968 during the period where there were many conflicts and a lot of protest about the war in Vietnam. 
that went on for several years, but just to give you a flavor for how I experienced it as a young 18-year-old person, I remember being out on the lawn at Columbia University with hundreds of other students, and we were basically supporting a large group of students who'd taken over Hamilton Hall, the classroom building, moved in, brought their sleeping bags, brought banners, and so we all, like five or six hundred of us, all sat out there. It was a beautiful night, actually, the one I remember. And first the dean came and said, if you guys don't cut it out, leave, go back to classes, your academic records are going to suffer. You may even get thrown out of school. And then a little bit later, the provost came and said, you know, you guys got to cut it out. You got to get out of this building. If you don't, we'll call the police. And the police will arrest you, and you'll get a criminal record, and your futures will suffer. Well, those were really, really powerful arguments in the era of the 1950s and 1960s, because what I remember about growing up is we were all the good kids. You know, we were the kids who didn't disrespect authority. We wanted to impress authority. We wanted to be the ones that the authorities, the teachers, the principals thought were great, so we would end up at schools like Columbia. So saying that you're going to undermine records and interfere with people's futures, that's a pretty serious threat. But that whole period was astounding to me because what did the students say? They said, hell no, we won't go. And it's sort of an all-purpose revolutionary slogan because they meant, we won't go out of this building, we won't go to Vietnam. This, to me, was a transformative moment because it made me realize that you actually could question authority and that you could think about what was a reasonable request for an authority to make of a person. And you didn't have to just do what people told you. You could actually say no. To me, this was a, also a transformative era for colleges like Columbia. When I went to Columbia, it was basically a continuation of the tradition that I had learned in high school. It was very formal. We wore sport coats, we wore ties, we addressed each other as Mr. So the faculty couldn't imagine the idea of the students calling them by their first names, but they wanted to be equal. So what they did is they said, we'll just call the students by their last names. So I would say Mr. Danto, and Mr. Danto would say Mr. Tyler, and it was all very formal and very remote and abstract and hierarchical. But also, we were being taught Western classics. We were reading all these books about all the people who'd rebelled against unjust authority throughout history, the heritage of Western classics, which at that time was considered basically the civilized world. So, Students were getting a very complicated message of hierarchy and deference. At the same time, they were getting a message of questioning. And the war in Vietnam was making all of this very, very central because each and every one of us could be picked up, basically, at any moment and sent over to Vietnam to fight because then there was a draft. And the university was actively cooperating with the government in this activity. So imagine finding out that if you get a C and your academic average is not high enough, you won't just see the dean, but the dean's actually going to call selective service and tell them this person should be 
basically drafted. So the, the war was becoming an ever-present reality. And that's where this whole generation was starting to think about the things that they were actually learning and reading and asking questions about why do we just, without thinking, accept whatever authority tells us we should do? Why would we do that? In the case of the instance that I was describing to you, the beautiful night when the deans were threatening us and the provost was threatening us, what was really amazing about that moment to me is even though the faculty and the administration presented themselves to the students as essentially the product of thousands of years of civilized moral authority, all that they could really come up with to say to the students in this crucial moment in the students' lives was, if you don't do what we tell you, we're going to expel you. We're going to get you arrested. Not a moral argument. And the students knew that, they saw that. They saw that there was no real legitimate basis for what was being said to them, so they simply wouldn't go along with it. And to me, that was a, an amazing thing, that you can just not go along with unjust authority. You can just not do it. And I saw people just not do it. Now, of course, what most of you are probably familiar with is the fact that the administration then did call in the police, and there were many students who were injured, arrested, and so on and so forth. But the point to me is that the students, to me, had the moral upper ground. After this happened, people didn't pay any attention to the administration or the faculty, or when they would go to classes and read about these great ideas of freedom and liberty, they wouldn't believe the teachers anymore because they could say, but in our life now, you don't believe those things. You don't enact those things. You resort to force. All of this leading me, a young person who had, I admit, a very sheltered life before I came to Columbia, to be really interested in the question of when does a person have a right to tell you what to do? What gives someone legitimate authority to, to dictate other people's lives, to change people's lives, to send them somewhere where they can die for something that they may not even believe in. My generation, that generation, then went into this several year struggle to try to recreate some system of authority on its own, to think about how people wanted to live their lives. People went on very different paths, and those paths had tremendous long-term implications for their lives. I remember we had a big demonstration at Fort Dix. Fort Dix was the military reservation in New Jersey where all the troops were shipped out to Vietnam. So it was decided we should really put a stop to that. And thousands and thousands of college students converged on Fort Dix, New Jersey to fight against the military machine. But what I remember is we're marching, thousands of us are marching down the street, and at the end there's an SDS speaker. He's saying, those of you who want to canvas the neighborhood, you go right. Those of you who want to attack the military machine, you go left onto the military reservation. And so, I was there, my friends were there, my two roommates both said, we're going left. We're going into the military reservation for reasons that I wish I thought were more 
carefully considered, I decided I'm going to go right and work in the neighborhoods, try to build political support. Well, one of my friends ended up in prison. The other ended up in Canada because they were arrested, they were thrown out of school, they were eligible for the draft, and not being willing to fight, their entire lives were changed because they chose one path, I chose another path, so I had the opportunity to find a way to try to think about and study issues of legitimacy into the future. Then I had the very good fortune to go to graduate school at UCLA to work with David Sears, who, in addition to being a really brilliant political psychologist, was a very open-minded and tolerant person who didn't really mind that I wasn't interested in political psychology, that I was actually interested in legitimacy and in the everyday relationship that people have to authority. Because ever since those events, I had been preoccupied with trying to understand how systems gained legitimacy and how they sustained that legitimacy. So I was fortunate to be able to study that, to go on when I got my first job. The chair of my department made an interesting decision. I don't know if it was a mistake. He said, what do you want to teach? So I said, I'll teach legal psychology. And I did that every year for 30 years, all the time being very interested in the legitimacy of authority and trying to think about the evolution of authority in our society. What I think is the primary thing that has changed over those 35 years is, for my generation, it was an amazing revelation to think that you could question authority. The pantheon of social, political, legal authority in the 50s and the early 60s, there was no framework for thinking about the justice or injustice of institutions. They just existed. So my generation became preoccupied with trying to think about going against those institutions and the conditions under which it's okay to disobey authority. Now, what we see is for the last 50 years, the trust in social, political, legal authority in America has declined constantly. And when we look at events that are going on now, like the Donald Trump campaign, the Occupy Wall Street movement, I think what we're seeing is an era where trust is so low that the question is the opposite question. And that is the question of what kind of consent, consensual basis for a legitimate authority can exist. How can we find a way to create some kind of legal authority, political authority, that people will be willing to defer to, willing to go along with. That, I think, is really the topic for the 21st century, is finding that way to reconstruct institutions that people can believe in. But for me personally, I think that I've always been excited about these questions that I learned very early in my life as a college student about why would you do what somebody else tells you to do? What gives a person the authority to get obedience from others? Thank you. What's 
A Scholar's Life was a co-production with the Law and Society Association. To hear all 12 stories presented at Live Law LSA, stories by Laura Beth Nielsen, Michael McCann, Lynette Chua, Kitty Calavita, Javier Cuso, Bronwyn Morgan, Laura Hatcher, Jamie Longazelle, Lior Israel, Nicole Gonzalez-Van Cleve, Bernadette Atueni, and Tom Tyler, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. Live Law New Orleans, A Scholar's Life, was produced by Susan Olson, Chris Monty, Megan Crowley, Heather Haley, with sound design by Jonathan Hirsch. We want to thank Life of the Law's Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Alyssa Bernstein for their production support. Music in this episode was from the new CD by Big Harp George Bishrat, Wash My Horse in Champagne. Jim Bennett was our engineer. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Take a few minutes to post a review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters, reviews of plays, books, and movies, with previews of upcoming episodes. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the panoply network of podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct cost of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law, we're honoring June as Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Pride Month with an exclusive interview with a transgendered inmate who tells the story of what it's like to live inside a California prison with 4,000 men. So say like someone was to threaten to attack me, as a citizen, I'm going to do what citizens do on the street. I'm going to report that incident and let the authorities take care of it instead of taking it into my own hands. Uh, and, and so when did you become a citizen? <laughs> <laughs> That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.